Welcome to part two on the Son of Man. First, I think we should point out the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days. What, a, what an unbelievable incarnational image this is. That he's coming to the Ancient of Days, presented before him, and universal dominion and kingdom is given to him. Also, the fact that the fourth kingdom is going to be so exceedingly great. And I mean, the Roman Empire at the time would have been just such a wonder. I mean, it's, it's staggering uh, how enormous it would have been. And then we have this war with the, the saints of the Most High until the kingdom, the fourth kingdom of Rome is handed over to the Christians. And of course, we, we see this in uh, the conversion of Rome. And But then we have, uh, he shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times. They shall be given into his hand for a time, two times, and half a time. So a time, two times, and half a time is three and a half. So it's it's showing incompleteness. So that it's incomplete. This time of trial is going to come before a time of victory. Okay, one thing you can say about Daniel 7 is all of us should be like Daniel at the end of it, that my thoughts greatly alarmed me, my color changed, but I kept the matter in my mind. These prophecies, this historical prophecy, I mean, it, it is it is staggering. And for, I mean, for a Jew living in Jerusalem at the time of Christ, they wouldn't be deeply acquainted with Daniel 7. As we saw in Matthew 26, when Jesus directly you know, says, he's asked, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? And he, he says, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Like the high priest tears his garment. Because they they knew about Daniel 7. Like Daniel 7 would have been at the, at the <laughs> on their mind all the time. Because they would understand that they're living in the fourth beast. If you're counting from Babylon, you had the Babylonian Empire, you had the Medo Persian Empire, Medo Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, which you couldn't mistake if it was a leopard with four heads. I mean, that's so obviously Greece. And then this fourth beast that comes up, Rome, which conquers all. Um, that's why when Jesus says son of man, it isn't some passing thing. This is like unleashing the Daniel's prophecy of Daniel 7. And also we have Daniel 9. Uh, Daniel prays for the people and uh, basically asks, you know, you know, have mercy on us, O Lord. While I was still speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, when I was speaking in prayer, the, the angel Gabriel whom I had seen first in the vision at first came to me in swift flight. And he said to me, I've come to give you understanding. Verse 24, 70 weeks of years are decreed concerning your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall cause sacrifice and offering to cease. And upon the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate, 
until the decreed end is poured out upon the desolator. This is confusing. Okay, Angel Gabriel. So Daniel's praying to gain more understanding over all this. What does Gabriel say? 70 weeks of years are decreed concerning your people and your holy city. 70 weeks of years, 490 years. So they had been in Babylonian captivity for 70 years and they're able to go back. But Gabriel's saying, you know, 70 weeks of years, uh, 70 years weren't enough for you to repent. So 70 weeks of years are proclaimed, 490 years. And if you count from when the Babylonian deportation was was happening, it's happening around, uh, you know, like 500 BC and a little bit after. And so the deportation uh, to Babylon, you count 490 years. And so in Jesus's day, it would have been mid 400 BC. I'm a little wrong on that. Uh, but that when you count from 70 weeks of years from these prophecies in Daniel 9, you get around the time of Christ, which makes sense because, you know, Jesus, the messianic expectation was at an all-time high. So, you know, Jesus says, many will say, I am he, I am the Messiah. Do not follow them for they are bringing destruction upon themselves. Uh, Josephus actually recounts as well in the Jewish war um, before Rome comes to destroy Jerusalem that there were more than ever people claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be the one who's going to restore Israel. The Messianic hope, and you actually find this in the Dead Sea Scrolls as well, that the Messianic, like the Qumran community created itself because they they knew that the Messiah was imminent. He was coming. He was almost here, right? And it's because Daniel basically gave them a timetable. He gave them two timetables. Hey, by the way, there's going to be four empires that are going to oppress Israel. And that's going to correspond very easily seen the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and then the Romans. Then we're going to have one like a son of man coming to the ancient of days, receiving universal dominion. That's the Messiah. And then in Daniel 9, we actually have 70 weeks of years who are um, of until the coming. So this 490 years. So yeah, it would be huge. Like people would have such an expectation of the Messiah and so when Jesus in Matthew 26 says, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven, the high priest tears his robes and says, he has spoken blasphemy, right? Because this is God we're talking about, right? Um, only God can ultimately have universal dominion, kingship, all this type of stuff. So, and they're not understanding the incarnation. This is who Christ is. Uh, a few other references, Psalm 8 which Paul picks up in Hebrews. And yes, I think Paul wrote Hebrews. Uh, in Psalm 8, we have, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. Thou whose glory above the heavens is chanted by the mouth of babes and infants. You hast found a bulwark against thy foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at thy heavens, the work of your hands, the moon and the stars which you have made, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him little less than a God and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also beasts of the field, birds of the air and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Paul picks this up in Hebrews when he talks about everything being put in subjection to him. Now we see Jesus who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. 
Oh man, son of man gets picked up so much in the gospels and Jesus is often refers to himself as son of man. I mean, there's so many, you'll, you'll see it all over the gospels, especially in Matthew, you know, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. You know, Matthew nine, but that you may know that the son of man has power on earth to forgive sins, arise, take thy bed and go into thy house. Uh, Matthew 11, the son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, behold, a man gluttonous and a wine drinker, a friend of publicans and sinners. You know, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Son of man is on Christ's mind the entire time. And for his, uh, his listeners, his Jewish listeners, um, it, it would have been shocking and immediately evocative of Daniel's prophecies and also Ezekiel's prophecies. Um, in Ezekiel 34, 33, we have, you know, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. I highly recommend looking into Ezekiel's prophecies because um, son of man gets brought up a lot there. And there's a lot of imagery of Christ being, it's in Hebrew, son of man would be ben Adam. Uh, and ben Adam would be, uh, you know, son of Adam. Adam is the word for man in Hebrew. And so, saying he's the son of man is also like showing his relation to Adam being this new Adam that gets brought up by Paul later on in Romans. Yeah. And to me, the high priest tearing his robes, which we see from first Kings, Leviticus and Exodus, like you just, you don't do that. (laughs) Like it's, it's like the most price, uh, most expensive thing in the temp- one of the most expensive things in the temple is just the high priest robe. I mean, it's for him to tear it, Christ would have had to say something so outrageous, you know, and he says it's, it's worthy of blasphemy. And it's because even the high priest and everyone, they understand that Daniel's prophecy is, is groundbreaking. It's, it's, it's life. It's just, it's life and death. It's, it's everything. The messianic hope is there in such a way that we don't find it so intensified, historically accurate, you know, to that degree, almost anywhere else. And I remember when I first read Daniel 7 and Daniel 9, I just was so blown away that this this could be in the Old Testament. This could be a prophecy. And, um, you know, I want to pick up this theme again of what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 3 about the scripture that kills. Augustine had this phrase that even if you're reading the Sermon on the Mount, if you're reading the Gospels and you don't have the Spirit and you don't have faith, it becomes the letter that kills. And what he means by that is without faith, you look at something like the Sermon on the Mount, which tells you, do not even be angry with your brother. Don't even look lustfully ever. And you look back at the Ten Commandments and you're like, I couldn't even do the Ten Commandments, let alone the Sermon on the Mount, right? That this new law. And there's something about you know, without faith, the New Testament becomes the Old Testament. It just, you read it into the context of not living the Christian life. However, the Old Testament, when you read, when you, when you have the spirit to understand Christ and you see Christ as being the center of the whole thing, you look back in Daniel's prophecy and it reads like you're reading the gospel. <laughs> you're reading, and this is why I've titled this series, The Gospel in a Year, because Oftentimes we love these, like, I mean, obviously we need to separate books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you know, Isaiah's prophecies, all this stuff, but scripture is one story. 
And it's not two stories. It's one story. It's one story woven together. It's, you know, everything may not be seen in the Old Testament already, but once you have Christ in the incarnation, you can look back on Daniel 7 and go, oh my gosh, this this tells us exactly the historical circumstance that led up to Christ. And here's the beauty of Christ, you know, of, of God predicting his coming. And, you know, it's it reads almost like you're reading the heart of the gospel in an Old Testament book. In a certain sense, if you have the New Testament um, and you don't have the faith, it reads like the Old Covenant. It reads like the Old Testament. Likewise, if you have faith and you have the Spirit and you read um, and you you see Christ at the center, you can look at the Old Testament and see Christ all throughout it. And if you're like Caiaphas, you look at the Old Testament, you see Christ, you rend your garments because he's claiming something that you don't believe in, that you don't believe in his messianic quality. Um, and hopefully we'll see now that I can, <laughs> I've said over and over again that I've wanted to deal with this for a very long time. This is the intro to the title of Son of Man. There's more stuff I didn't even reference about Son of Man. Revelation 1, Revelation 14, I saw one like a Son of Man coming on the clouds. Like, this is in the, uh, this is the air they breathe. You know, the air scripture breathes, it deeply breathes in Son of Man. Um, it's a wonderful title and it, and it evokes so much of the truth of Christianity. It evokes the incarnation, the historical element, the saints of the Most High, the tribulation, the destruction of Jerusalem, the saints of the Most High going to battle um, and being overcome. You know, you look at all the Roman martyrs. There's so much more. We're going to find a lot of the Son of Man in Matthew 24 to 26, um, especially concerning the destruction of Jerusalem. But this episode's probably already gone super long, um, and I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I hope this serves as kind of a benchmark that you can go back to and say, "Oh, wait, Son of Man, yeah, here, here we go." You know, this is this is this whole Son of Man prophecy. That's gonna wrap it up for this. I'll see you in the next one.